certainly delighted tonight to be here. Sure appreciate the opportunity and invitation to be here tonight and certainly looking forward to being with you next month for the January meeting. I'm very happy and delighted and thankful also for God's blessings upon this church in recent days. Very thankful that he has answered prayer and I believe worked on both ends of the line, both with the church and also with Brother Chris. And that's the only successful way that uh, you can operate in the kingdom is to look to the Lord and follow his guidance. I've known Brother Chris for uh, quite a few years. I've always enjoyed being in his presence and uh, consider him to be uh, a man of God that has, I think, uh, a wonderful gift in preaching the gospel and working with people. And I hope and pray that the years ahead will be fruitful and prosperous beyond anything you've ever experienced in the past. Now, tonight, I'd like to begin with a thought that uh, our Lord spoke in Matthew 23 and 12. Matthew 23, 12, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Whoso shall exalt himself shall be abased, and whoso shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now, this is a principle that weaves in and out of Scripture from the beginning to the end. It's a very important truth contained in the Word of God because the glory of God and the peace and happiness of each one of us is at stake depending on which side of this verse we find ourselves. We're talking about pride and humility. Now sometimes these words are used separately and sometimes they're used together. We're told in Proverbs 16 and 18, for example, that pride goeth before destruction. In other words, where there's pride, destruction will follow. Uh, we find uh, Proverbs 6 and 16 where Solomon said, There are six things that the Lord hates and the seventh is abomination in his sight. And the first of those six things is pride. Uh, pride is something that belongs to the world. 1 John 2 and 16, the Apostle John says, For all that's in the world, which is the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. The world is summarized in that expression, those three parts, and just describe the world as being the lust of the flesh, uh, the pride of life. Uh, you see that manifested, you know, daily, I believe, out here in life. Uh, man is a very boastful creature according to nature. Uh, pride is the downfall of Satan. One of the qualifications of a minister found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's not to be a novice, uh, lest he be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil experienced condemnation because of pride. Isaiah 28 and 1 says, Woe to the crown of pride. In Isaiah 14 and 12, we have a statement here concerning the character of the name of Lucifer. And we find the word eyes used five times there as he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend on high. Uh, I will be above God, make myself as God. Uh, we find that pride uh, puffs us up. It uh, shows that we're not thankful, that we're not dependent upon the God of glory. Over in the book of James, in James 4 and 6, James says, God uh, resisted the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. In verse 10 he says that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due season he shall exalt us or lift us up. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says basically the same thing. Uh, I don't want to be resisted by the Lord. I want to be 
brought in or received by him. But he resisted the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. We're told in Colossians 3 and 12 to put on therefore as the elect of God, holy beloved, humbleness of mind. There's seven things to put on as the elect. He starts off with humbleness of mind. Man by nature is not humble. Man by nature is a very proud being, a very proud creature. It will remain that way unless he's brought down, I believe, with an experience of grace. Um, pride and humility are off, uh, on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And we have numerous examples of this. We look in the book of Luke in chapter 18, verse 9, where the Lord spake this parable concerning those that trusted in themselves um, and were self-righteous and despised others. And we have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee used that word I. And anytime you hear somebody talk and they're using that word I a lot, that's somebody you need to kind of be careful about. Uh, this, I had experience two or three years ago. Somebody wrote me a letter telling me of all the things that they thought could be improved among the old Baptists. Well, I, I'll say tonight we all can improve. But it was a page and a half, email page and a half, and I counted the word I over 70 sometimes. And we, he and I got together and talked. And I asked him, I said, you know how many times you used the word I in this page and a half? Well, no. I said, well, it was, I think it was like 73. I said, 73 times. Uh, that's a big red flag. And that Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I thank you uh, that I, you know, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an uh, extortioner. Uh, you know, I, I tithe, I tithe this, and I that. There's five eyes there in that 34-word prayer. But the publican has a seven-word prayer. And he smites himself in the breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, this parable, the Lord gave this parable to teach those Pharisees that they were self-righteous and despised others. Now, notice again that Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Even as this publican over here, he's comparing himself to the publican. Well, we're to, you know, the standard is Jesus Christ. And when you compare yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing to boast about. You have nothing to brag about. You have nothing to be exalted about in your own self, in your own nature. Uh, we just don't have anything to boast of in our own selves. But humility is not just something that comes easily. It's something we have to apply, something we have to put on once again. As Paul said, put on therefore is the elect of God, humbleness of mind. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect example of humility. We read in Philippians chapter 2, beginning about verse 4, it says, Let this mind be in you was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought not right to be equal with God, uh, made himself of no reputation. But he took upon himself the form of a servant, came in the form of a man, and humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself, Humility really is walking in submission to God. It's being obedient to God. That text there says humility and obedience go hand in hand together. Now we can take a look at a lot of other examples tonight, such as uh, Haman in the book of Esther, such as Nebuchadnezzar over here in the book of Daniel, two of the greatest examples of how pride can lift somebody up. We might just briefly comment on Nebuchadnezzar. He walked out to the kingdom one day, and he began to take inventory of the kingdom. He began to take all the credit for it. He said, look at this great kingdom which I have put together. And as the words were just coming out of his mouth, God struck him down. 
and took him off the throne, went out in the field, began to graze grass like the beast of the field. His hair grew like bird feathers. His nails grew like bird claws. And he learned a lot of theology in God's school of higher education. Because while he's out there in that condition, and his Bible says that he came to himself, he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? Now, he didn't learn that through pride. He learned that through humility. The Lord just brought him down, put him out there in the field. And what an awful sight he must have been. And, of course, you know that Haman was so lifted up with pride because he got promoted. And pride led to his destruction because he couldn't stand one little old Jew by the name of Mordecai that wouldn't bow down and give him honor when he walked through the gate. And that led to him building some gallows. And, of course, later on, we find that he wound up on the gallows instead of Mordecai. Yes, pride goeth before destruction. But I want to take a look at two men tonight that share the same name that I hope will illustrate some of these things we've already spoken to you about. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New Testament. And I'm talking about Saul of Kish in the Old and Saul of Tarsus over here in the New. Now, they share the same name, but that's about all they have in common. Now, Saul of Kish is going to be a man who's going to start out little, but he's going to come big and be destroyed. We're going to find that Saul of Tarsus, of course, who will become the Apostle Paul, will start out very big, but he'll become very little and be highly successful. They'll illustrate, I believe, what the Lord was teaching there in Matthew 23, 12, when he said, Whosoever exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. We begin to look at Saul of Kish. Now, Kish was the father of Saul. So Kish was a person. Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus was a place. We could be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we find where the nation of Israel, who had been so highly blessed of God, uh, decided they wanted to have an earthly king to be like other nations. Now, this is a part of human nature, to be like other people. And you have to be real careful about that, because the Bible tells us in Romans 12 and 2, to be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. Uh, by the renewal of your mind, you might prove was that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. But Israel did what a lot of us have done. We just kind of looked out, you know, made some type of decision. We didn't look up first. As I've said before, if you want to have a good uh, outlook, it begins with a good uplook. You've got to look up to the Lord if you're going to have the right kind of outlook in life. So they wanted to have a king to be like other nations, to judge them. And Samuel was quite distraught about this. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, he said, um, you know, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. He says, but you go and you tell them uh, what they can expect. And so he did. He went and told them if he went through with this, so to speak, what would the results would be? He says, this man will take your land. He'll take your vineyards. He'll take your olive yards. He'll take your uh, sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take your men servants and women servants, et cetera, et cetera. He'll do all these things. But you know, sometimes when people have their minds made up, it doesn't matter what you tell them. If their mind is made up, it doesn't matter. You know, when you counsel somebody, let's say as a man and a wife, they're having some marital problems, and you go to counsel with them. Uh, if one of them's already got the mind made up, you're just spinning your wheels. You know, you're just spinning your wheels and wasting your time, and they're wasting your time, and they're wasting their time if the mind is already made up. But if they come and they sincerely want to try to work things out, then that's a different story. But you can usually tell real quick if at least one of them has got their mind made up. And you might say, why did they ever come to begin with? Because some people like to soothe their conscience. 
Now, afterwards, they like to say, well, you know, I went to counseling. And it didn't do me any good. Well, it didn't do you any good because you didn't listen. It didn't do any good because you didn't apply what you were taught. That's why it didn't do any good. I can assure you God's word will do you some good. God's word is profitable. If you heed God's word, it will be profitable in your life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says so. All scriptures give them inspiration to God and it's profitable. When a husband follows the word of God, it will be profitable to him as a husband. When a wife follows the word of God, it will be profitable to her as a wife. But anyway, Israel didn't listen. And they were steadfast and about this matter. They wanted to have an earthly king. And so the Lord's going to grant this. So we look over here in the next chapter. And we're going to find that there was a man by the name of Kish. Who was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he had a son by the name of Saul. And the Bible says that Saul was a choice young man. I want you to notice the description God gives of this man. He was a choice young man. He was a goodly man. And it says there was not another man more goodlier than he. That is a Bible word, goodlier. I can assure you it's there. There was not a more goodlier man than he. And um, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. So they take this outward look. That's what man's known for, taking an outward look. And take this outward look, and here's a man that's got all the great physical attributes that you can, you know, desire in a person if he's going to be your leader. And so he's a choice young man. He's more good than anybody else. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. And so this becomes the people's selection. And you're going to find how God is going to equip him that if he would simply do what God said, God was still going to bless him, even though they had committed a great sin. And they finally confessed that. We've committed a great sin in asking for an earthly king. And Saul told them they had done great, uh, had committed a great wickedness in doing so when they had the God of glory. But now they want an earthly king instead of God who had formed them, created them, and directed them, and guided them, and delivered them time and time again. But anyway, their mind's made up, and that's who they want. And we find that he's going to become the first king of Israel, but he was the people's choice. We're going to find that this man in the beginning was really a humble man. In the very beginning, you're going to find where uh, he somewhat objected to this position, didn't feel really to be well qualified. He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest of all the tribes, 12 tribes. He says the tribe of Benjamin is the smallest tribe. And then in the tribe of Benjamin, my family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, now that's a statement of humility right there. That's a statement of a man who recognizes, uh, you know, from the standpoint of qualifications, he doesn't seem to be qualified. But nevertheless, he's going to be the man. And the Lord is going to give him another heart. He gave him another heart. We find where he gave him the spirit of prophecy, where he could prophesy. And then he put men around him whose hearts had been changed. So he's going to be well equipped. Uh, he's going to have every advantage he needs to be a successful person. And then Samuel tells him this. says, if you're a king and you continue uh, in the things of God, keeping the commandments of God, then you shall continue and you shall be blessed. But if you do not, if you disobey the commandments of God, then you and your king both shall be destroyed. So even though they committed this wickedness sight of God, God is so gracious and God is so merciful, he's still willing to bless them if this king and the people will obey him, keep his commandments, then they'll be able to continue on because God will be with them and God will bless them. That's a, that's a God of great mercy there. When you get rejected, somebody says, you know, I just don't like rejection. Well, I don't know if anybody really does. Uh, I don't know if anybody really likes to be rejected. Well, what about God? God was rejected. God developed this nation. God formed this nation. God created this nation. God brought them out of the land of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, brought them into the land of Canaan. Um, 
just blessed them in every way imaginable. And now they want an earthly king to take the place of the God of heaven, the God of glory. I believe that's the ultimate example of being rejected by people. So if you've ever been rejected, I can assure you this. Your rejection, I believe, pales in comparison to God being rejected as the creator God of all humanity, of all the universe, and the creator God of this nation. He was rejected. And yet in that rejection, he still promises to bless them if they'll keep his commandments. And he says, you shall be able to continue. But we find where Saul, as he was beginning to be blessed, and he was, he began to win the battles against the enemy. God was prospering him and God was blessing him. But uh, we're going to find in chapter 13, where he was supposed to go to a certain place, and he was supposed to wait for Samuel the prophet. And while he's waiting for Samuel the prophet, he hears the rustling or the noise of the Philistines, and Samuel is not really on time. We're going to find here where Saul is going to do something Saul was not supposed to do. He was the king, but the king did not have the right or authority to make an offering. And that was in the place, you know, for the priest to do that. And he did that. And just as soon as he did, we find Samuel comes on the scene. It's always been really interesting to me to know when we do something wrong, it seems like God appears right then. You know what I mean? Uh, when you do something wrong, it's like you're getting caught with your hand in a cookie jar. Uh, and he gets caught right off the bat here. Samuel comes on the scene and rebukes him sharply. And he says, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a man after God's own heart. Well, this man after God's own heart, of course, is David. He's going to be the eighth son of Jesse. Uh, there also, uh, well, from, Beth from Bethlehem. And we're going to find where he is going to be God's choice to be the, the first king after God's choice. So he's a second king, but he's a king after uh, God's choice. He's a man after God's own heart. But we find where David comes into the picture and God begins to bless David. And he goes out in battles against the Philistines. He wins those battles and some of the women come up with a song. And they said, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. That was true. Uh, God blessed them both. Well, here's the point. God blessed both Saul and David. But he blessed David greater. Uh, God doesn't have to bless everybody the same. You know that, don't you? God is not uh, obligated to bless you and me and anybody else exactly the same. He may bless you far greater than me. If he does, that's wonderful. I would rejoice in that. God doesn't bless everybody to the same degree. He's sovereign in all things that he does. And so he's blessing Saul to defeat the thousands. But he's blessing David to slay the ten thousands. And of course, they come up with this song and Saul hears the song. And here's the beginning of his downfall. Because now he becomes envious and jealous of David. He starts out fine. He's winning battles. God's blessing him. Uh, he's been victorious in all the battles he's gone out and been engaged in. And now here comes David along and God is blessing him. And Saul doesn't like that. It says, I, David, Saul eyed David differently from that day forward. Because now envy has entered into his life and jealousy has entered into his life. Now here's a man that's starting to get big in his own self. He should have just thanked God for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for enabling me to win the battles I've won. And I thank you that here's another man that you're blessing even greater than you bless me. That's the kind of attitude we ought to have tonight. That's the kind of attitude every single one of us ought to have in life. Thank God for how he's blessed us. And then thank God for him blessing other people. And the greater the better. That's what it should have been, but it was not. We're going to find where Saul has five children, three sons and two daughters. And two of these five children could play prominent roles in the life of David. One of them is Jonathan. 
Now, Jonathan and David become very, very close. They're going to have about as close a relationship or friendship, probably closer than anybody else you read in the Word of God. And then we're going to find where Saul is going to give one of his daughters, Michal, to, uh, to David for a wife. But the Bible says he gave her to him for a wife that she might be a snare unto him. Now, I'd hate to have a father-in-law like that, wouldn't you? You know, know that he actually gave permission for you to marry his daughter so she'd be a snare to you. But the reason for that is because he wanted to destroy David. And that's what pride does. Pride causes you to think improperly. It causes you to react and do things that you shouldn't do. He wants to destroy David. And he's going to use one of his own children, his daughter here, to destroy David if he possibly could. But it's, it's not going to work. We're going to find at least four times this expression concerning David's life. And the Lord was with David. And the Lord was with David. And David behaved himself wisely in the sight of all the people. And Saul feared because he recognized that. He recognized that the Lord was with this man. God is blessing David, but now God is going to cease blessing Saul. But we come to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, Samuel comes to Saul and says, The Lord has directed you to go out and fight against the Amalekites. And when you do, you are to slay every one of them. You're not to bring back any of the Amalekites. And you destroy all the cattle, all the sheep, all their belongings. You to totally destroy them and bring back nothing. So they go out and do battle. God blesses them as he had in the past. Saul wins the battle. But Saul's going to bring the king back. Uh, Agag. Now that's nothing but pride. So he's exalted himself. It's, it's nothing but pride. And then he and the people bring the very best of the sheep and the oxen. Now when they come back, sure enough, here comes Samuel on the scene once again. And as soon as Samuel comes on the scene, Saul says, we've done everything the Lord told us to do. This is called partial obedience. And partial obedience is not what God wants out of you. It's not what he wants out of me. God wants total obedience. But you know, people like to obey God partially and say, well, I'm doing what the Lord told me to do. I want you to notice the word all here in this text over here in Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. All thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. That word all there means that you're not to trust in with some of your heart. Acknowledge him with just some of your ways, but all your heart and all your ways. But as I have said many times in times past, that's an easy verse to memorize. It really is. Now, some verses are not, but that one is. You can have it down pat before you go to bed tonight. If you don't already have it, I would encourage you to do so. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to your own understanding. But as easy as that verse is to uh, memorize, it's extremely difficult to apply. <laughs> Very difficult to apply. Easy to memorize. Saul says, well, we've done what the Lord said. Well, Samuel says, well, if that's the case, what's this uh, lowing of the oxen, the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? I wouldn't be hearing these animal noises if you've done what God said. God said, destroy every single one of the animals. Destroy the people, destroy the king, destroy all the animals. Bring nothing back. Then Saul says, well, the people brought back the animals. Saul's a fast learner. He, he knows uh, the benefit of passing the buck. You know, you know, Adam got it started in the very beginning. Well, the woman you gave me, you know, brought me the fruit. Isn't that something, you know, that's the way it is. You know, every once in a while, something will happen and I'll say, Karen, where, how'd you lose that or something? She said, why are you blaming me? I said, well, all the kids are gone. We can't blame the kids anymore. You're the only one left in the house. Of course, she gets back at me sometimes about that. But anyway, we're the only two there. So it's always got to be the other one's fault, right? We just passed a buck. So Adam says, that woman you gave me, she's the problem here. 
Samuel, Saul said, well, the people brought back the animals. And I, and I brought back the king. But the people brought back the animals to offer sacrifices. He thinks that's going to be great. God's pleased with offering sacrifices. But Samuel said, to obey is better than to sacrifice. He said, disobedience is, is stubbornness and witchcraft. Partial obedience is not pleasing in the sight of God. God wants our all. God wants the best that we can give him. God wants our minds, our hearts, our souls. He wants the very best we can give him. He's not pleased with partial obedience. I know we've all been guilty of that, but God expects dedication and commitment. He expects total obedience. And God expected that out of Saul, but Saul didn't do it. I can imagine when Saul won that battle. You know, it was, it was very common when battles were over and the victors would bring back to, you know, some of the captives and parade them down the street, so to speak, to, to, to show off, you know, here's what I did. We went into battle. I, I won the battle. Here's the evidence of it. Here's the king uh, of the other people. And here's uh, uh, some of the people we brought back, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure that all entered into the mind of Saul of Kish. But it wasn't pleasing in the sight of God. We find that Samuel rebukes him sharply and says, The kingdom now has been taken away from you. It started back a couple chapters earlier when he took matters in his own hands. He did not have the right and authority to do so. And he knew better. And now he doesn't do what God tells him to do. Now God blessed him to win the battle. Isn't it amazing how God will always, of course, do what he says he's going to do. But we fall short oftentimes. And we're going to find that Saul of Kish falls way short. He doesn't do what God said. You know, I guess the attitude that he had is like a lot of us have had at times. Well, you know, I, 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 I pretty much did it. I've almost done everything. I mean, I, you know, I, that ought to be a passing grade, I guess. But it's not. It just doesn't work that way. And from here on, you've got to find that Saul of Kish is getting a downward spiral. Now, here's what else that Samuel tells Saul of Kish here. He says, when thou was little in thine own sight. When you were little in your own sight, did not, did not God take you and place you to be the head of the people? When you were little in your own sight. Did not God make you the king over all the people here of this nation when you were little in your sight? There's a time when Saul was little in his own sight, but he lost that humility and began to exalt himself. And began, I believe, to think in the terms, well, look what I've done, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Look what I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. Uh, look at uh, what I've put together, so to speak. When that was little in thine own sight. His downward spiral has... Begun, begun, and it's going to go down quickly. I guess the thing that really shows how far he went down is comes to a time when the Philistines had gathered together against him, and he called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered him not. This is the second time he calls the Lord, and the Lord answers him not. Remember, God resisted the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we're going to find where he's in such a straight that he tells his servants to find a woman who has a familiar spirit. And they find the witch of Andor. And he goes to where she's at. He disguises himself. You know, he might hide himself from her, but how's he going to hide himself from God? You can't hide yourself from God. He disguises himself and goes to her and tells him what he wants. He wants her to bring up this man. And when she does, lo and behold, she's astonished. She brings up Samuel who had died sometime earlier. And when that happened, she was frightened to death and recognized that this man who came come to her making this quest was none other than Saul himself, who'd already put out a decree that it was illegal for people to practice what she was practicing. 
But he assured her that she would not get in trouble in doing that. And she did. And Samuel comes up. You say, Brother Lawrence, explain all that to me. I don't have time tonight. <laughs> I don't know how all that happened. Other than just a miraculous intervention of God. You know, God can do all those things to, to bring us in, uh, to, to, you know, shock us or whatever. And so Samuel comes up and Saul says, asked the woman, says, well, how is he dressed? And when she told him how he's dressed, she knew he was Samuel. And Samuel asked him what he wanted. And he told Samuel, he says, how did you come asking me when God answered you not? He says, but ye shall go against the Philistines in a short period of time and you and your three sons will be where I'm at. I'm sure that was not the answer that Saul wanted. Here's a man who had ability. Here's a man who had talent. Here's a man that was head and shoulders above all the people and at one time was little in his own sight. But he became big and exalted himself. And then pride enters the picture and destruction follows that. And we find that Saul of Kish now dies on the battlefield with his three sons. The last thing is recorded him in the book of 1 Samuel. Come over to the New Testament and take a look at another Saul. This other Saul, first of all, comes to our attention in the last part of Acts chapter 7. He's Saul of Tarsus. In the last part of Acts chapter 7, you're going to find where Stephen's given a great defense of the truth and he's going to be stoned to death for this. But the Bible says the witnesses took his clothes and laid them on a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now, the word Saul means dedicated to God. I used to hear when I was growing up that the word Saul meant big and Paul meant little. Paul does mean little, but Saul does not mean big. Saul means dedicated to God. Now, we'll say this. In his life as Saul of Tarsus, he, he was big in his own sight, all right. But it means dedicated to God. And I believe that Saul of Tarsus was just as dedicated when he was Saul of Tarsus as he was when he was Paul later on in life. Here he consents to the death of Stephen. Chapter 8 tells us this. In the opening verses of chapter 8, it says, As Saul made havoc with the church, he gave consent to the death of Stephen. And we find that Saul of Tarsus is a great persecutor of the church. He was dedicated, as much as anybody you're ever going to read about, uh, concerning what he thought was right at that time in his life. He's a great persecutor of the church. And he's going to go everywhere he can to get men, women, and children and bring them back to Jerusalem and bind them. The church is under heavy persecution being led by Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, his name means dedicated to God, but he is big in his own sight. He explains this over here in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, he speaks how he was of the tribe of Benjamin, just like Saul of Kish was. It says, in touching the law, uh, he was a Pharisee, the Pharisee, in touching the law, he was blameless. I mean, he had a resume that would just knock you out. Here's a man who grew up at the feet of Gamal. He was highly educated, well taught in the law. He was very, very uh, dedicated to destroy the church. But in chapter 9, we find something happens to this man. This man is going to have what we call an experience of grace. I used to hear that a lot growing up, you know. And when you join the church, people say, well, you know, I like to hear somebody join their tale about their experience of grace. I don't hear that near as much as I once did. I think maybe we ought to. Because the church is made up of people who've had an experience of grace. And so Saul's on the road to Damascus. He's got letters of authority to go to Damascus and get men and women once again who are committed to the discipleship of Christ and bring them back to Jerusalem and bind them. He's on his way. The fierce lion is on his way. 
But on his way, he struck down as a light appears unto him at midday. And he struck down to the earth. And the Bible says, Saul of Tarsus, trembling, said, Lord, who art thou? I doubt this man had ever trembled before in his life, but he's trembling now. He did not tremble at the message of Stephen, but he trembles at the words of God. He said, Lord, who art thou? And he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is in glory when he makes that statement. And so that teaches me that when you persecute the Lord's children, it's just like persecuting Jesus Christ. Everything you do to another child of God, every word you say is like giving a cup of cold water or it's like offending the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the two. And therefore, we ought to be extremely careful how we say the things we say and the things that we do say because when we say it to another child of grace, it's just like saying it to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Why persecutest thou me? When he was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Christ. He said, Arise and go to Damascus. It shall be told thee what thou shalt do. And he goes to the city of Damascus. Well, down there in the city of Damascus, a man by the name of Ananias. And the Lord speaks to Ananias. You see, the Lord's working on both, land, both ends of the line. He's working over here with, with Saul of Tarsus. He's also working over here with Ananias. And he tells Ananias he's go down to, to a, straight call, a street called Straight. And he's to inquire, and he'll find one called Saul of Tarsus. He said, Behold, he prayeth. That's the first uh, uh, important bit of information Ananias receives from the Lord. Behold, he prayeth. I'm convinced that Saul of Tarsus had prayed many times the Pharisee's prayer. I'm sure Saul of Tarsus many times had stood on the street corners and prayed prayers uh, just like the Lord condemned there uh, in this Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, be not like the hypocrites. You go down to the street corners and they pray to be seen of men. And he went to the street corners. That's where the most traffic was, you know, where the most people were at. And they could be seen as pious individuals, as very religious individuals, and uh, people would brag about them. That's the kind of man the Pharisee was in Luke chapter 18 we mentioned in the very beginning. I'm sure he prayed many prayers like that. But that's not the kind of praying the Lord's talking about when he speaks to Ananias. Behold, he prayeth. God knows when you're really praying and when you're just saying words. Behold, he prayeth. And I said, Lord, he, I've heard about this man. He, he, he's been persecuting your people. He, he's supposed to be coming to Damascus right now with letters of authority to get your people and take them back to Jerusalem. But then the Lord says to Ananias, he said, fear not. Because he's a chosen vessel unto me. That's the second bit of important information. He's a chosen vessel unto me. Now who chose who there? <laughs> Obviously Saul of Tarsus didn't choose the Lord. I can tell you that. Here's a great illustration, my friends, what an experience of grace is all about. When you've had a true experience of grace and properly interpret your experience, you're going to confess, I believe with all your heart, he has chosen me if I'm chosen at all. He's a chosen vessel unto me. Ananias then went and done what the Lord said. When he got there, he reached out his hand. He says, Brother Saul. <laughs> he was totally convinced that this man was a child of grace, a child of God. Brother Saul. You know, that's why we call people in the church brother and sister. It's very appropriate to call people in the church, at the church, and away from the church, brother and sister. And so if I meet you wherever, I'm going to call you brother or sister. I don't care who's around, what the situation is. I'm going to call you brother. I'm going to call you sister. It reminds me, uh, I know I've told you this in times past. It reminds me a number of years ago when uh, me and Karen and Brother Ira and Sister Mildred went to a clothing store. They was going to buy me a sport coat. 
And I tried this one on. I said, what do you think about this one, Brother Ira? And then, of course, I asked Karen what she thought about it. But then I, then I said, well, Brother Ira, what do you think about it? Brother Ira's paying for it. So I said, what do you think about this, Brother Ira? Finally, I tried one on, and the woman waiting on she looked and said, well, Brother Ira, I like that. Well, what about you? <laughs> so we settled on that one, if I remember correctly, and got it. He said, Brother Saul. And it fell from his eyes, and it had been scales, and now he can see, he hadn't seen for three days. That's an experience of grace. This man, Saul of Tarsus, is going to be called Paul in Acts 13, 9. The word Paul means little. Saul means dedicated to God, but in his dedication to God of Saul of Tarsus, he was big in his own self. Saul of Kish started out little in his own eyes, when that was little in their own eyes, remember that? But he became big and went out destroyed. Here's a man who starts out big. He has the experience of grace. And here's what he said about it over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the opening verse, about verses 9 and 10. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I'm the least of the apostles, not meet, to be, not meet that is, worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, what are you, Paul? You're a child of grace. That's what you are. You're a child of God. You're a child of God based upon the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He didn't put any buts with that, any ifs with that, any ands with that. He's just like the rest of us. If you believe in grace, you believe in grace without anything being added to it. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Here's a man who believed in grace. Because he had an experience of grace. And Paul knew, and Saul of Tarsus, he did not deserve to be a servant of God. He did not deserve uh, the mercy that God gave him. And the grace that God gave him, but God gave it to him anyway. Because he's a vessel of God. And God dealt with him. Sometime between conception and death, God deals with all the elect of God. And they're all going to have an experience of grace. Aren't you glad that the aborted child, uh, you know, that... Unfortunately, we live in a country that has uh, legalized abortion. But aren't you glad the little aborted child, my friends, can have an experience of grace? Aren't you glad they don't have to grow up and believe and be baptized and all these kind of things? It's very important, but they can have an experience of grace. And I believe they all have an experience of grace. Aren't you glad that a, a person in the deepest parts of Africa, where the man ever gets there with the Bible and the gospel at any time in their life, can have an experience of grace? All the Lord's people, my friends, will experience that which is called an experience of grace sometime in their earthly journey. Whether they lived, you know, a few days in a mother's womb, whether they lived for a few hours after being born, or whether they like the thief on the cross, and they end their journey, my friends, being crucified for a crime, of being one of the elect of God, they have an experience of grace. John the Baptist had an experience of grace in his mother's womb. The thief had an experience of grace on the cross. And Saul of Tarsus had an experience of grace when he's on the way to Damascus to persecute the Lord's children and the Lord's church. You never know when and where. That's why we bring our children to nurture and admonition of the Lord. We never know when and where the Lord's going to deal with our children. I'm thankful that God blessed me with a godly mother and father. Took me to the house of God consistently and regularly from the time I was born in this world. And you know, the sisters here have been pretty cooperative about bringing children to the world and being at church the following Sunday. 
I've told the church uh, here and there, I was born the first part of the week, and on Sunday, that first Sunday, I was in the house of God. And I said, when you get ready to have that baby, you have it on Monday. And, you know, there's been a lot of them that's cooperated about that. I mean, they have uh, listened to what I've said, and they've done that. Now, once in a while, we've got somebody that doesn't listen. They have it on a Friday or something. But anyway, when you're going to have a baby, have it on Monday, so you be in church on Sunday. That's the only way they're going to have perfect attendance. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad... I'm glad we believe in a God who operates in a sovereign manner, a sovereign way, and all these children shall have an experience of grace sometime in their earthly journey. It may be in their mother's womb. It may be just as soon as they were born into this world. It may be uh, in the Philippines, in the darkest parts of Africa. But I'm telling you, if they're a chosen vessel of God, they'll have that experience of grace before they leave this world. Amen to that. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's all I can say and all you can say tonight. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are. It's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Paul never lost sight of what a great sinner that he was. Paul was a man of great humility. The apostle writes in Romans chapter 7, he describes his experience after being born in the Spirit of God. He said, uh, you know, that, that which was in me, that is in my flesh... Uh, there dwelleth in my flesh dwelleth that which is in me dwelleth no good thing. Get right in a minute. But anyway, uh, dwelleth no good thing. He says inside of me that is my human nature. There's nothing good about it. He begins to describe when he would do good, evil is with him, and when he would do evil, good is with him. He's describing the conflict and the battles every one of us go through on a regular daily basis in this world here. There's not a day that goes by that I don't have an inward struggle, an inward battle with my human nature. I said, I'm just going to move away, get a fresh start. That might help you. But just remember this, you've got to take yourself with you. You can't escape yourself. No matter where you go, you've got to take self with you. You can travel 2,000 miles and go somewhere where nobody knows you, but you know yourself, and you've got to take yourself with you. That's the problem, problem self. So Paul finally just comes down and summarizes in Romans chapter 7. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What kind of man are you, Paul? You mean what kind of man were you? No, Paul says, what kind of man I am? Therefore, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul said, I'm wretched right now. When I take an inward look and see that old man, I'm wretched right now. When you get up in the morning... And look in the mirror, you've already faced the enemy of the day. Yourself. Public enemy number one. You've already stared him right in the face or stared her right in the face, whichever way it may be. You gotta you gotta get on that. You gotta be prepared to do that battle in the very beginning. Oh, wretched man that I am. First Timothy 1 and 15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. The Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, whom I am chief. When I think of Paul, I don't think about him being a chief sinner. Paul did. He said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now I come into Ephesians 3, 7. And Paul said unto me, who am less than least of all the saints, is this grace given. If you're less than the least, that makes you the least. Unto me, I'm less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given. All the saints, Paul says, I'm less than the least of all them. I'm a wretched man even right now. 
I'm the chief of sinners even right now. And I believe we see ourselves as being the chief of sinners. And a wretched man right now, there would be no harm in us. And I believe that's what uh, real humility is all about. When you lift up with pride, I can assure you, you don't see yourself as the chiefest of sinners. You see yourself as Nebuchadnezzar. You see yourself uh, as Saul of Kish. You see yourself uh, as Haman was in the book of Esther. You think yourself to be somebody, a great man, a very important person in this world. But God respects those who walk in humility. And this man started out big, and he became little. He became very successful. He will write 14 to 27 books in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was successful because he was a man of great humility. The Lord said, Whoso shall exalt himself shall be abased, but whoso shall humble himself shall be exalted. If you're exalted in the flesh, you're heading for destruction. But if you're lifted up and exalted in the spirit, what a blessed state to be in. Isn't it wonderful to be in the Spirit of God? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to have the experience that Paul said to the Ephesian church, Be ye filled with the Spirit of God. If I'm going to fill this glass with uh, Coke, i got to pour the water out first. Well, if I don't, I'll just have a mixture of water and Coke. You see what I'm saying? If I'm going to fill this glass with water, i got to pour whatever's in it out, if it's Coke, and then put water in it, or vice versa, whichever way I said that. But anyway... And if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you've got to take something out first. You've got to empty yourself of the flesh. You've got to empty yourself of all the carnality, my friend, as much as humanly possible to be filled with the Spirit of God. And I'm going to tell you, you come to the house of God, you come to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you come there prepared, and you come with a spiritual mind, and you come there having uh, read your word, the Word of God and, and listen to singing perhaps or some hymns on the way down, engage in spiritual conversation, maybe listen to the radio broadcast or whatever. When you come in that door, you can't wait being, to sit there and open up your hymn book and start the singing. But if you come with your mind on other things, thinking what you've done yesterday, think what you're going to do tomorrow, by the time you get warmed up, church is over. You say, I missed it. You did. You missed it. And so we want to come prepared to the house of God, don't we? And to feel the presence of the Lord. And when God blesses you and lifts you up with his presence, I believe it's about as heavenly as you're ever going to be here, this short of glory. And so anyway, I've enjoyed my opportunity here tonight to speak to you. Thank you for your good and wonderful and kind attention. And if uh, you don't cancel the appointments in January, I'll be with you in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs>